coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We've got the sad story of how cloud-enabled toys are, you guessed it, leading to data breach and loss of customers' personal information. Then the story of backups gone bad, but this time, it's a good thing. Your feedback, a huge roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on March 7th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three most excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. Joining me today, well, and every day we do this podcast, is the admin, the organizer, and most importantly for this program, the explainer. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, Wes. Hello, everybody. It's wonderful to see you. Welcome to my secure, undisclosed location. Looks very secure. Some sort of arcane drawings in the background that I can't quite just... Oh, is that our familiar Tetris lamp in 2D form? Yes, it is. I brought it specially from from home today. (sighs) You're just thinking of the audience. You know how we love it. I have no credit for the artwork, but hopefully... I have scanned the walls for proprietary information. And excellent, there is excellent, as is your duty. Are everything ready to go? Have you get everything set up okay in your super secret location? I did, I did. It, I, I took a photograph of this setup, and I will post it later. And oh, yeah, literally, the we, 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 we are broadcasting from six cardboard boxes. I kid you not. <laughs> JB1 is a little better than that. No, I'm just kidding. It's much better. But that's great. It is. We it do is. whatever it takes to make this show happen. We do what it takes when we travel. Excellent. Okay. Well, with that, let's jump into the first story today. We've got a lot of awesome stuff on this episode of TechSnap. First up, we're visiting a story we touched on just a little bit last week, but you've got the deep dive information. What do you have, Dan? Well, late last week, this story came out um, about cloud pets. And basically, these are soft, cuddly toys that kids can talk to and leave messages that other people can pick up, like their parents or their grandparents. Or their grandparents can leave a message on the website that the toy will then talk back to the kid through through the website. Um, unfortunately, they were really, really bad at their security. The, not only was the entire database exposed online, there was no password. There was no security whatsoever. It was just open there, and you could read everything, absolutely everything. That sounds like just the thing to get you on an episode of TechStamp. It does, doesn't it? Well, I can't take credit for the research, but this, this was a great article. Um, so there was a couple of weeks ago, uh, there were a lot of news headlines of how Germany had banned an Internet-connected doll called Kayla. That's the anglophone name, I'll bet. Over fears that hackers could target children. And one of their primary concerns was the potential risk to the privacy of children. And I quote, conversations between the child and others can be recorded and forwarded. So, yeah, unless you protect this, it's going to leak out. And lo and behold, it did. So um, there's a nice little, if you scroll down a little bit, there's a nice little video there where you can see how these things work. And, but... The key here is that most people 
the average person isn't aware of the issues here. So they're they're technically literate enough to know the Wi-Fi password, but not savvy enough to understand how the magic of daddy talking to the kids through the bear and vice versa actually works. They don't necessarily realize that every one of those recordings, those intimate, heartfelt, extremely personal recordings between a parent and their child is stored as an audio file on the web. They certainly wouldn't realize that in CloudPet's case, the data was stored in a MongoDB that was in a publicly facing network segment without any authentication required, and it had been indexed by Shodan. Oh, man, that is just asking for trouble. Wow. So no, normally you, you, put, you would put your public-facing services on public IPs right. and the stuff that isn't public on non-routable addresses just to get around this very issue. <laughs> right, exactly. Put a firewall, maybe there's even NAT involved, and yeah. it's on an entirely non-routable subnet, right? Yeah. That's standard so practice. Your database is here, your, data, your web server is here, and this can talk to that, and only this can talk to that. So even if you can find out the IP address of it, you can't you're, talk to yeah, it. You can't talk to it at all. And if it's non-writable, you're not going to get to it anyway unless you somehow exploit the web server. But no, they didn't do this. It always surprises you that people, like, obviously they were able to make a product, you know, maybe not successful. I don't know how what their sales looks like, but a functional product that people bought. And you think with that kind of, you know, if you have enough skills to make all that happen... It's really not that much more effort to ensure that you have kind of those base ground levels of security covered. Uh, I think they just got it to work. That's all. Right. Um, Proof of concept and push it out to production. Yeah. I would like to know who actually did the actual work. I'd like to know, you know, was it was it a reputable place? Mm-hmm. Obviously not. But w- w- was it the guy who 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 developed CloudPets? Was it the CEO right. or something? Or did they but just anyway. contract out and then you know they're not really beholden to what happens after? Now, one of the things I wanted to point out, what is Shodan? Um, I first encountered Shodan shortly after I started working with my current employer, and it was very interesting. Uh, Often you'll see people post, uh, oh, look at all these webcams that Shodan found, because what they do is they go in and they look at what's an IP address on a certain port, and then they catalog that, and they keep a catalog based on, oh, here's all these cameras of a particular model. And they're all on these websites, so you can go and find them. Um, now, that sounds like a bad thing, but no, it's not a bad thing. Uh, so basically, Shodan is, is a website indexer that categorizes things by what it finds there. And in this case, it found a MongoDB database. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to talk from the um, author's point of view here, and this is uh, Troy Hunt's blog post. And I've come to really like the stuff he writes about. So the first I knew of it was when when earlier last week someone sent me data from the table holding the user accounts, about 583,000 records in total. This subsequently turned out to be only a subset of the total number in in the CloudPets service. Now, Sometimes you see leaks of a couple of hundred records or a couple of thousand, but this is more than half a million records. Wow. <clears throat> Pardon. So he, this guy just happened to be in the U.S. running um, a workshop, and one of the guys in the class had an, a Cloud Pets account. So what he did is he said, hey, come over here, have a look here. Do, do you have an account? See, is this right? 
And so what the guy did is um, he tried it, and yes, it was there, and it definitely was his account. Um, and what he did is because the dump had the email addresses and the hashed passwords, he said he asked for the guy's password after getting him to change it. He said, give me your <laughs> password and let me see if this hash really is your password. And it turned out it was wow. his password. So he was able to quickly confirm that this was a legitimate dump because he had someone right over here who whose data was in this dump. So then he, he also um, validated this by going through his wife's account. His wife also had an account oh, on there. Yeah. So basically, the key point here, Cloud Pets left their database exposed publicly to the web without so much as a password to protect it. So unrestricted <sighs> access on an IP address. That's crazy. Find it, grab all this data. So not only this is username and passwords and it's everything. It's just not usernames and passwords. So the guy who contacted Troy Hunt had tried to contact Cloud Pets three times to warn them about this exposure. The first time was on December 31st when he reached out to the email address on the support page, but the message immediately bounced back. So why does you've got a contact page and that email isn't working? That's bad. So then he tried the email address on the who is record and he didn't get a response after four days. Then he contacted their hosting provider. Still no good. So on the third attempt here, he'd said he'd identified over 820,000 users, which means that the 583,000 we mentioned earlier was not the full amount. So three attempts to warn the organization of a serious. This isn't trivial. This is serious. This is a whole lot of stuff. And so Troy Hunt talks about this particular issue about if you've got user data, act responsibly. I've said many times before in many blog, blog posts, public talks and workshops that one of the greatest difficulties I have in dealing with data breaches is getting a response from the organization involved. Time and time again, there are extensive delays or no response at all from the very people that should be the most interested in incidents like this. If you run any sort of online service whatsoever, Think about what's involved in ensuring someone can report this sort of thing to you because this whole story would have had a very different outcome otherwise. For reference, check out Tesla's security vulnerability reporting policy, which is beautiful in its simplicity. And yes, go and look at it. Tesla's one of my favorite companies. Buy me a car for my birthday, please. But it gets worse still. And this brings me back to the earlier point about multiple people having accessed the data. So he reached out to Lorenzo from Motherboard, and he's worked with Lorenzo before. And what they started doing is they started looking at the data and the databases and the stuff that they could find. So Lorenzo re reached out, and clearly cloud pets weren't just ignoring Troy, they were also, they simply weren't reading their emails because this is the fourth attempt that they know of. Other people may have tried to get in touch with them. They don't know. So now they started looking at the data. They can see 21 million voice recordings. 21 million. 
Wow. It seems to be reasonable for 800,000. I mean, each yeah. person does three or four messages. That's So they can also see two identical databases, both about 10 meg, hmm. 10 gig, sorry, Cloud Pet Staging and Cloud Pets Test. Okay. Why are both of them on the internet? Yep. That's that's bizarre. So this he he quoting this breaks the cardinal rule of never putting production data into a non-production system. Don't do it. Why do it? Keep them separate. They're supposed to be separate. So there are references to almost 2.1 million voice recordings of parents and their children exposed by databases that should never have contained production data. That's bad. But then they dug a little deeper. They started looking at the mobile app. So the app communicates the website. They know the IP address by snooping on what the app is doing. So what they do is that they look at it and they ha- have a look and they say, oh, okay, well, this database is being used for production purposes and the other non-production purposes as well. So th- this database just sits there and it contains data from both environments. So so he started to look to see whether or not the voice re- recordings w- would have the same sort of relationship. Can I get voice recordings out of this database? And so what he did is he posted a voice recording through the toy, through the app, and he watched where it went. And he grabbed the URL out of there. And with that URL, he was able to download the voice recording that he uploaded. Now, that's requires a little bit of technical expertise, but it's by no means difficult by what they're doing. So not only is the database open, but the cloud recordings are open as well. They're all there are no access controls or anything like this on these things. Nothing. Yep. You know the URL, you can download that voice recording. And Most it's not of. hard to get the voice recordings. Yep. And Amazon makes it pretty easy you know, to, to set those things up if that's clearly there's been no effort whatsoever into securing these customers' data and you know, recordings of people's voices. It really does strike you kind of at home. You're like, you know, if it's just an email, whatever, there's been enough breaches that people may be a little desensitized. But this one feels different because it's kind of people's intimate moments. And it's kids. And it's kids, yes, exactly. Yep. All right. So now let's see what Troy has to say about Cloud Pets passwords. So they use Bcrypt, which isn't too bad. Nice. Yeah. Now, the problem is they had no password strength rules. So you could, no kidding, you could have a password of A. You could have a password of just a few characters. Now, what that means is You've got all the passwords in the clear. It's very easy to have a rainbow table, look up all these passwords, and bang, you're in. And you can get access to all that stuff. Now, if they had even had some sort of password requirement, you know, you got to have seven letters and you got to have a mixture of this, it would make it a little bit harder for people to get in. But there's, so, as you can look here in the in the um, screenshot, there's passwords of ABC123, 123456, password, cloud pets. Oh, oh man. Cloud pets is a password. Um, so due to there being absolutely no password strength requirements whatsoever, anyone with the data could crack a large number of passwords, log onto accounts, and pull down the voice recordings. So then he, he went on to a, another friend of his. 
who was who had done some work cataloging exposed MongoDBs. So what he did is he used Shodan's API to go back and look at the historical states of the IP addresses and the exposed databases running on it. So December 21st was the first recorded instance of the data being exposed. So this came to Troy's attention on the 31st, but six days later was when Shodan um, found it. So if you look back there a few days, um, December 25th was the index entry. December 31st was when they found out, when Troy found out about it. But then if you look on January 7th, there's a new entry there that says, please read. So if you have a look in there, it's pretty clear that what they have there is a ransom request. And it says, I'm going to read it the way it should be read, but not the way it's written. Your DB is backed up on our servers. Send one Bitcoin to, then send your IP address to kraken at india.com. Kraken O, Kraken Zero at india.com. So while Shodan doesn't, uh, sorry, lost the page. While Shodan doesn't show us what was uh, indexed at that time, it's pretty clear that what they're looking at was an extortion attempt. Now, it's a safe bet that the exposed cloud pets contained the same message as so many other compromised databases with the same name did. The analysis that Niall was doing at the time showed that at this stage, the two original cloud pets databases had been deleted, which is what you'd expect Ugh. when a ransom is being demanded. So yep. they downloaded them all, deleted it, and then said, here, send your stuff. So on January 8th, there were two more entries. And so there's more people who are demanding a ransom here. So several people have downloaded this, and, and they're all demanding ransom. There were so many malicious parties taking action against exposed databases during this period, and we frequently saw the same system accessed multiple times by different actors, each demanding their own ransom. It wasn't until January 13th that Shodan reported no publicly accessible databases on CloudPets IP address. So this is approximately three weeks after it first came to their attention. So um, now there is a link here to a story by Brian Krebs about how extortionists wipe out thousands of databases and victims who pay up get stiff. So apparently if, even if you pay the ransom, you don't get your data back. That sounds really unfair to me. It sure does. But I mean, if this is your game, right, uh, fairness is like few and far between to be found. That would be so just, depressing, though. You, sh- you fork over the money. You're like, okay, we can at least get production back online. Our customers will stop yelling. And then nothing. Well, where's your backup? Yeah, exactly. Tell me, where's your backup? So he, let's go through the list of um, events that Troy talks about. December 30th. Lorenzo's contact attempted to alert Cloud Pets. December 31st, Troy tried to contact them. December 31st, he tried to contact the Who Is record. January 4th, he attempted to alert Linode. January 7th, the original databases were deleted and ransom demand. January 8th, another ransom demand and a second ransom demand on the same day. So January 13th, all the databases were found to be, no databases were found to be publicly available. So that's over, well, just over two weeks. Sorry, I said it was three weeks. But they said that 
the first Linode entry was December 25th. So th this lasted at least three weeks. Now, to be fair, maybe it w wasn't publicly accessible before January 25th, but I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah, so, everything we've seen here would say that it was. So his next point is, unauthorized access must have been detected, but impacted parents were never notified. So no one was notified here. Now, I find this interesting thing. He starts looking at the stock price for Spiral Toys. The CloudPets Twitter account has been dormant since July last year. So combined with the complete lack of response to all communications, it looks like operations have well and truly been shuttered. And so with respect to the stock price, since late 2015, there's been a rapid decline where basically the company is near worthless. They started off with worth about $260,000, but that, Oh, sorry, that is their current worth, and it's down nearly 99% of their peak value. 99% gone. So I'm sure they must have cut some things along the way, including security. Yeah, it's pretty hard to um, keep the lights on at that point. So They've got no cash flow. Right. Uh, so about eight hours after this article was posted, he saw the first response from Sparvel to Toys, which in itself is interesting. Basically, the guy is denying everything. He says, you know, there is no breach. It wasn't exposed. Voice recordings weren't stolen, but we've already seen that they grabbed a voice recording. Um, if you know the reference to the file, you can download it without authorization. You can go and get it. If you can crack a password, you can log in. Uh, there are no rules on password strength. The guy says, well, there needs to be a balance and how much is too much. Oh, gosh. And then they claim the company never received the warnings. But we've already read that there are three, if not four, warnings sent. So that if there's a breach, admit your mistake, apologize, clean up. And then it's over. You'd hope. I mean, you, you, I don't think many parents are going to be buying the, buying this stuff anymore. But but that's so, your best shot. Yeah, I'll always admit error. Don't cover it up. It'll yeah. just come out. It'll haunt you. Then you'll never be trusted again. So then there is another response uh, f from the from the CEO, but I don't want to go through that. Twenty three hours. What was interesting is uh, update number three, one day, seven hours after posting. So Cloud Pence sent a notice to the Attorney General's office. I urge all the readers to go through this. Basically, they're, they're lying through their teeth about what happened. They're minimizing the effect. They're saying, no, no, there's nothing here, nothing to see here. Please carry on. Um, I can't believe it. Um it's just a total balls up situation from start to finish. Yeah, you can really tell and, they're trying to manipulate the narrative here. You know, it's like when they're finally getting around, like, okay, well, we can't completely hide whatever's happening now. They're like, okay, well, it'll be our set of facts here that'll go on the record. And yeah, we didn't, we, we were told about it way late. It's despicable. Yeah. Mm, no, no. Um, hopefully, if any listeners have these toys for Christmas presents recently, perhaps. 
uh, you might want to think twice about using them. You might want to think twice about going in and deleting the voice recordings. But given the way uh, what we've seen recently, I wonder if you deleted the voice recordings, do they actually get removed or just oh, the references man. disappear? So, yeah, this is this is. I hope this starts being taught as what not to do when there's a security breach. Because this is just terrible, terrible. Yeah, it's, you're right. It's exactly the, it's like a counter playbook of just don't, don't do any of these things and you'll be on a much better footing to right out the gate. Yeah, well, they messed up terribly. So do you have any advice for how people who do want, I mean, I can see, I don't know about this in particular, but I can see the novelty or maybe the attraction, especially for kids for some similar types of devices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything people can do to try to assess this sort of thing before buying a product like this? I, really I mean, the don't name know. Cloud Pets, I think there's a lot of people in our audience who would like, that's a cynical mark already, and you'll be like, uh... That sounds terrible. Yeah, right. I know I know somebody, some, some people that would not have something like Siri or, or what's the Google app. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, some people that don't even want to use them, but I'm not extremely worried about that myself. Um Everyone's just got to decide for themselves. Are, are they worried about it? Um, what's the downside if the recordings get taken? I mean, right. That, that's a good some, point. Some people would feel extremely, extremely um, exposed, but other people, it's just my kid talking to a toy. So everyone's got to decide for themselves how risky they feel this is. And you may be able to tell, I mean, they're not perfect indicators, but looking at the stock price, looking at their Twitter, other social media, you know, if they're at least active and seemingly responding to other people's complaints or other Mm -hmm. things, then you at least maybe will have an outlet when things do go wrong. (laughs) And these guys aren't answering Twitter. (sighs) No, not at all. Wow. Anything else you'd like to add for this story? No. Yeah, it's no, a little depressing already. Let's, uh, let's move on to something a little less something depressing. Something happier. Yeah, so uh, up next, we've got our first advertisement from our wonderful sponsor, Ting. So head on over. Go to techsnap.ting.com. If you do that, you'll get a $25 service credit to try out when you sign up for a new Ting plan. But you may be thinking, ah, signing up for a new cell phone plan, do I really want to do that? Ting is different. There's no contracts. There's no early termination fees. They want to be mobile that makes sense, right? So you sign up for Ting. It starts at $6 a month. Then you just pay for what you use, messages, minutes, megabytes, any way you see fit. You just go and pop on over the rates page. You'll find this awesome little box. You can kind of go look at your current bill. They also have a neat tool. If you use one of the big carriers, they'll do this for you. But if, if not, just head over here, kind of click through. How many lines do you have? Oh, three lines. That's $18 a month. Most other places, you'd be paying, what, like 50 maybe if you're lucky, $70, $80 for a three-line plan? Not so at Ting. So go on over to Ting. They care about security. They care about people who are cord cutters, people who want to use their devices. So, you know, all those things you have to pay extra for, like tethering data, uh, you know, nice voicemail, anything like that, video con- or voice conferencing, that sort of thing. Ting, it's all bundled together. You just pay for what you use. You want to you tether and you want to work. You need to download some big files. You need to do... You know, you've got business to do. Ting is ready for that. Or completely opposite. Maybe you have a little device that you want to connect to the cloud. You have a backup cell phone you keep in the truck for when you're out on the road away from civilization. You don't want to bring your main phone. Ting makes perfect sense for that. I love Ting. They're my mobile service provider. They're just about everyone I can tell about Ting's mobile service provider. So if you head on over to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get that $25 service credit. Or if you also, if you want, they sell phones. They're unlocked. They don't keep updates from you. 
They got a whole shop. Just head on over to their shop. You can, if you buy a nice phone, you can use that $25 service credit there. Or if you're anything like me, that'll cover probably your entire first month's bill and maybe some of the second. Go check them out. Techsnap.ting.com. Ah, I'm still a little depressed over that last story. I think we're going to make you smile on this one. Okay, good. I'm going to hold you to it. Okay. Normally when we start talking about vulnerabilities and exposures and stuff, I always say, listen, don't take pleasure in this because some people made mistakes and they're trying to fix it. But in this case, I can't imagine anyone except the individuals involved feeling sorry for themselves. Okay, I'm feeling better already. Thank you, Deb. Because in this story, we're talking about spammers. And spammers aren't very much liked by most people. But in this case, they exposed their entire operation through bad backups. <sighs> this really sounds like a gold up. mine. It was. Basically, they have an R-Sync set up and they're backing up their data that way. But somehow they made it public <sighs> and someone found it. So... Uh, it's all about River City, River City Media, RCM. It's backed by two folks named Alvin Slocum and Matt Ferris. They accidentally exposed their entire operation to the public after failing to properly configure their R-Sync backups. So this data from this well-known but slippery spamming operation was discovered by Chris Vickery, a research for Mac Keeper, who shared with Salted Hash, Spam House, as well as as well as relevant law enforcement agencies, the data that he found. Now, you might wonder why he released it to the police and didn't notify the folks. Normally, that's what a good researcher does, and I, I'm not saying he did anything wrong, but we'll get to the reasons why he did that later. So. Today, we release details on the inner workings of a massive illegal spam operation. The situation represents a tangible threat to online privacy and security as it involves a database of 1.4 billion, with a B, email accounts combined with real names, user IP addresses, and often physical addresses. Chances are that you, or at least someone you know, is affected. So... This isn't a case of someone messing up and revealing private information. This is a situation where people are illegally collecting information and using it to carry out illegal activities. So this is why the security researcher felt it better to contact the police instead of contacting the people who had inadvertently exposed this data. Now... I find that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Now, somehow the spammers had a feeling that something was wrong. So they said, a message appeared internally. They said, if you're not changed your Skype and HipChat passwords as yet, please do so as soon as possible, wrote Alvin Slocum in early February on on HipChat. So he figured something was up, figured they'd been hacked. Mm. He was correct to be cautious, but right. not for the reasons that he thought. He, he assumed they'd been hacked when, in fact, they hacked themselves almost. They let everything out. Yep. So at this point, their backups have been exposed for more than a month. So Vickery had discovered something. He discovered from HipChat, 
logs and domain registration records, accounting details, infrastructure planning and production notes, scripts and business affiliations. In addition, Vickery uncovered 1.34 billion email accounts. We talked about that earlier. These are the accounts that will receive spam or what RCM calls offers. Now that's, what is it, euphemistic? Euphemism, yeah. Euphemism, thank you. Some other records also contain personal information such as full names, physical addresses, and IP addresses. Man, that is terrible information to be let loose on the public. God. Well, they've collected it. Yeah, exactly. They've collected this information. Scraping it from all their, yeah. So we get into how some of this information is gathered. So Vickery also discovered thousands of warm-up emails used by RCM to skirt anti-spam measures. So we'll get into what the warm-up messages are in a second. As a whole, most of the personal records and email addresses he discovered were collected by a process called co-registration or co-reg. At first, I thought this was opt-in or something, but no, it's not opt-in. And in a way, it's opt-in, but it's not legitimate opt-in. Opt-in is where you say, oh, listen, I'd like to sign up for this mailing list, please. And what a responsible mailing list provider will do is they'll email that mailing list and say, hey, listen, do you really want in on this? Really? Really <laughs> right. you want in? Please just verify okay. and then... Yeah. Respond to this email or click on this link, something like that. That's yep. called opt-in. Well, I think that's actually called double opt-in. But anyway. But it's a good it, common best practice it, for... It's to act- what you do. You it's don't want to be someone who ends up spamming other people or... Yeah. You just don't add someone to a mailing list without, yeah. So, co-reg emails come from people who signed up for something online and had their address shared with a third party or partner. So, you know, um, sign up to win this free iPad. So, well, somebody wins an iPad, but you don't. But what you have to do is you have to give your email address away with it. And often that's where they'll collect the IP address or maybe your mailing address because you're going to want to get the iPad mailed to you. So, yeah, that's where this sort of information comes from. So such ad- address lists are the lifeblood of the industry, and they're constantly being analyzed through tracking systems, examining which addresses are viewing spam ads, which ones are clicking on them, and which ones are buying. Now, I, I know that this is how good mass marketers work. Now, by mass marketers, I mean businesses that are – are legitimately sending out mass mails to, to customer companies, companies' customers. And, yeah, they, they track, you know, did this get into the inbox? Did it get bounced by Yahoo or Google or whatever? Did the person click on the link? And then did they buy anything? So they keep stats like that on, on people. Um, so basically, back to the, this co-registration thing. The original contract for handling handing over the address is never fulfilled, since it turns out to be impossible to redeem the free gift or only with extreme difficulty. Um, remember all these people, all these offers that say, uh, buy now and you'll get $10 off, re- re- yep. mail-in rebate type thing. Oh, yeah. So what do you get now? You, get, uh, you don't get a check. You get a little plastic Visa card. Yes, a little gift card. Or it's like and, a visa, but prepaid that you, yeah. Mm-hmm. And after a year, you start being charged fees on it. And within three or four months, zilch, you get nothing. Yep. So really what you have to do is 
get that card and use it right away somewhere for something. Yeah. I usually so, like to, you know, use it like go buy a gift card that lasts longer or like a gift account balance for something on another site or something like that. Get on Amazon, buy a gift card. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And apply it to your own account. Yes, yeah. exactly. So now this data that they found, the R-Sync backup, is only from a snapshot taken from backups. Many of the records were current as of January 2017, while others were last updated in December of 2016. So it's a very small snapshot. But from reading this article, it's huge amounts of information, just huge. So uh, Spam House, which is a very reputable organization involved in tracking spam, concluded that RCM has been using illegal IP hijacking techniques during some of their campaigns. So they looked at the data and all this documentation and said, hey, this is actually illegal what they're doing. So this is one of the reasons that the cops got involved. So um, getting back to uh, notification, proper notification of security issues, Vickery said he didn't reach out to RCM directly. And here's a quote from Vickery. Once we concluded that this was indeed related to a criminal operation, it was decided that we should approach law enforcement and the affected companies like Microsoft and Yahoo before making any attempts at contacting the spammers directly. The leaking servers went dark during the process of notifying law enforcement and the major companies, so I did not directly contact the spammers themselves. So he's going to contact law enforcement first and the companies who were being exploited before he got back to the people whose data was being leaked. But then the data disappeared off the internet, so he decided... I'm not going to contact them. Yeah, at that point, it's like, well, yep. yeah, the harm has at least stopped for now or, you know, temporarily stopped. Yeah. Now, scrolling down here a little bit further. So some of the data that was involved in here, I find fascinating in terms of the scope of the spammers operation. <sighs> RCM's data breach also exposed 2,200 IP addresses I'm rounding up used for public-faced activities, as well as the group's internal assets. This is in addition to the 60 IP blocks RCM has identified for activities in the past, as well as current and future operations, and the 140 active DNS servers that are rotated frequently. 140 DNS servers. So, based on campaign logging documents, the data breach also exposed more than 300 active MX records. MX records are mail exchange records. Those are basically uh, mail servers that are set up to receive incoming mail or send outgoing mail. Um, In two spreadsheets alone, RCM recorded nearly 100,000 domains used for their campaigns. 100,000. Wow, that is a serious number. Uh, No wonder they need so many DNS servers. Uh, uh, imagine that each one costs five bucks. Mm-hmm. That's half a million dollars just in domains. I would like to be their registrar. Now, go from there and figure out how much money they're making that they can afford 100,000 domains. Wow. There's a shit ton of money in this. Yeah, definitely. That's certainly true. As mentioned, Vickery discovered tens of thousands of email addresses email accounts used for warm-up. Now, now this I found interesting. And 
the explanation of what a warm-up account uh, fits, what I know about what uh, big mail companies like Yahoo, Google, etc. do in ter- terms of allowing email in. These warm-up accounts are computer-generated and maintained by RCM staff. Their usage and creation almost certainly violates the terms of service at the large email providers where they were created. The exposed RCM records show warm-ups at Gmail, AOL, Hotmail, and Yahoo, but others are sure to exist. The process works like this. RCM will send messages for a given campaign to those warm-up accounts, so in effect, they're spamming themselves. Sounds ridiculous, but wait, there's more. And since they're not generating complaints from those messages, since they're not going to complain about their own messages, the email service provider or affiliate program will mark RCM as a good sender. That's really that's really quite clever and gets around a lot of that kind of you know um, cur- you know does. you kind of build ma- the whole email system works on building these re- reputations and relationships between providers and especially when they have enough volume and enough domains like mm-hmm. that where they can really you know yep. it'd be harder yep. for you or I to do that but at that scale wow mm-hmm. so once they have a solid reputation built up they're ready to blast the rest of the internet with their offers. <laughs> If an offer doesn't inbox, meaning it is rejected or otherwise dumped into a spam or junk folder or a given domain is blacklisted, RCM goes back to a list of thousands of domains and selects another to restart the process. In some, now, this I knew, this part about older domains. In some cases, RCM will use aged domains. Aged domains are valuable, as newly registered domains are immediately suspect, especially if they've never sent mail before. So, yeah, new domain comes in, it's risky. So, some of the documents exposed by RCM's data breach shows plans to purchase aged domains at auction. Other domains purchased in bulk are prepped for warm-up and used once they have a positive age and reputation. So... Not only are they sending spam, they're playing the long con. They're getting stuff bought, sitting it, aging it, waiting for for it to be ready, and then bang, they send out all this spam. Definitely the signs of successful organization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And basically, if they get caught, oh well, we won't send from that domain now, we'll send from this one over here. So they just keep going. So now... It's the business connections I want to get into now. So one of the exposed chat logs shows Slocum complaining to Ferris that their buddy Mike is very close friends with the owner of Alp Names so that if any issues come up, let me know and I will see and he can hook us up, not get us pulled down. So spammers rely on intimate relationships with people in the business And it's those people that give these spammers legitimacy and allow them to continue. So, but Alpnames isn't the only business relationship that stands out. There's also emailtraffic.com. So they employ a guy named Sean. And in chat, he's known as MX. We heard that before, mail exchange. So he's the owner of MX Leads in Florida, but he's also behind another RCM partner, Phoenix Network. So basically, this guy, Sean, is the one that does all the scripting work. And it's his work that allows them to exploit a number of providers in order to inbox their 
offers. So the examples include Mac, uh, sorry, um, Apple, Hotmail, Gmail, AOL, and others. So Salted Hash reached out to all of the providers and shared the scripts that they found that, that Sean had written. And that they gave them the notes that were exposed for the data breach. So as a precaution, they're not going to be publishing or releasing details about that. But basically, they contacted the people who were being ex exploited and let them know the basis of the exploits. And this is all because it's illegal activity. Illegal activity. Um, they're not doing this because they think they should, but just basically they're being hacked and abused and death to spammers, basically. Um, now, they talk about another company, Youngstown Systems, LLC, which Spamhouse says could be a fake ISP. So someone's saying they could be a fake ISP. They probably are, but they don't have proof. So Youngstown has MX records on email traffic and an A record pointed to Phoenix Network. The exposed document suggests this ISP was some sort of joint venture between Sean and RMC, but that might not be the case. So they're saying this probably is true, but we don't have enough proof, but we suspect it was. So the rest of the stuff I didn't find quite as interesting. Um, but basically, I've always thought that spam, if you did, did it right, had a lot of money hidden behind it. And I have actually worked with someone who was in the business of sending out bulk email. And by bulk email, I don't mean my former employer who did it legitimately. Right. Excuse me. I mean someone who used to send out spam and then got into a different business and told me that this is what he used to do. Oh, that's interesting. Wow. And But that guy was suspect. Very I, suspect. I mean, I'm, I'm already suspicious. I... I but I think you're yeah, right. I mean, very the, sketchy. you know, the, the marketing budgets are pretty, have deep pockets these days, and this can be definitely seen as a way. And when your goal is to try to get the, you know, the most number of click-throughs and to reach the number of most of inboxes, then you may, you know, you may just go to whatever company is offering services that mm -hmm. seem like it works for you. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, the people that are engaging these uh, marketing campaigns, most of them assume that this is being display ads. Right. Most of them aren't expecting that it's going to go via email. And it goes out via email, and it looks like a display ad, and people click on it. But not only are the recipients being faked out, the advertisers being faked out as well. And so the, the spammers are being paid to do this much work, <laughs> but they're only doing this much exactly. work and making that much money. That's a pretty so, sweet deal if you can get it. Yeah, but then you're a spammer. Then you're a spammer. Oh, wait. Yeah, right. Um, I want to go on to the next the next link here, the Spammergate one, the one on MacKeeper, um, because I actually talk about a very interesting aspect here. Um, basically, they're talking about uh, a technique in which the spammer seeks to open as many connections as possible between themselves and a Gmail server. This is done by purposely configuring your own machine to send packet responses extremely slowly and in a fragmented manner while constantly requesting more connections. So then, uh, still down a little bit further, just below that. Yeah, it's just below your cursor. Yeah, that ah, section see. there. So then, 
when the Gmail server is almost ready to give up and drop all the connections, the spammer suddenly sends as many emails as possible through the pile of connection tunnels. The receiving side is then overwhelmed with data and will quickly block the sender, but not before processing a large load of emails. So purposely throttling your own machinery to amass open connections on someone else's server is a type of slow Laris attack. And there's a Wikipedia entry there for it. The twist here is that the spammer is not trying to completely disable the receiving server. He is only temporarily stressing the resources in order to overwhelm and force the processing of bulk email. I'd never heard of that No, before. me either. That's, that's really clever. That, that's evil. It really is evil. It's, it's pathological, evil. right? Like that's not something you would, I would naively not think to defend against that at all. No, no, no. It shows you but how clever some of you know the people who are motivated to do this are. It really takes some technical chops in a lot of these cases, which is interesting. The dark forces have led you astray, my friends. Yes. Do your work for good, yes. not for evil. Exactly. There's a lot of problems. We need the help to fix them. Uh, I I honestly don't think that, that um, Troy has done anything wrong here. I think he's done the responsible thing. It does seem and, like uh, responsible disclosure sorry, in this I case. Said, I said Troy. I'm sorry. That was a previous article. This is uh, Vickery. Chris Vickery. Right. Thank you, Chris. This is very good. I like this. I like this a lot. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's nice to see something like this. We know we see so many breaches and customer information. Like that part, the the exposure information is not great. Um, that, that, you know, that this can, can happen um, mm-hmm. in general. But... Uh, for it to be turned around on people who are doing bad things is a little a little treasure we don't get very often on this show. Not often enough, anyway. Yep. Spammer research was something I, I remember getting involved. I worked for Affilius for a very short period of time, their domain name registrar. Hmm. And I remember talking to some people there about identifying people who are registering domains for nefarious purposes. Oh, interesting. And it was amazing to see the domain names that they would register, like very long names, mm-hmm. just gibberish letters, all differing only by a couple of letters, but just long names. That, Huge spaces of names. Yeah. yeah. Not not really, not real words, just gibberish. And yeah, they're being used for things such as this spammer crap. That's crazy. Do you have any uh, takeaways from this story or anything else? Ways maybe people when they are doing backups and other things to ensure that they don't expose information that should not be? Do your backups to offline servers, not things public on the internet. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's uh Oh, I like that. I like that very much. All right. Well, if you're watching the show and you're concerned about that or you need you need a tool set where you can do, you know, you'll have backups or you can build them securely. Let me tell you about our next sponsor. That's DigitalOcean. What is DigitalOcean? Why they are the simple, and I do mean simple, cloud hosting provider that's dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a cloud server. You may be thinking, yeah, there's lots of there's lots of companies that you know sell cloud servers. They're all the rage. DigitalOcean is different. They they've been doing this game for a while now, and they've done it with a different approach right from the beginning. SSDs. They have awesome connections to real KVM hypervisors. Yes, that's right. You're not getting some open VZ or or you know kind of false virtualization here. You get a bare metal hypervisor, KVM. Tons of support. Great support for Linux. Got free BSD. If you want to, if you, you know, there's a, also some scripts. Maybe you want OpenBSD, NetBSD, Arch Linux. That's all possible because DigitalOcean uses awesome KVM virtualization. 
Let's talk about what you can get here. Prices start at just $5 a month. That gets you 512 megs of RAM, a 20 gig SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte. Yeah, that's right. A terabyte of transfer. Once you've got that, they have lots of stuff. They've got resilient, available, redundant block storage ready to go. You just attach it right to your droplet. If, if you're, you know, hey, your backup solution, it's taken off. You suddenly have customers. You need load balancers. They've got that now, too. So they have, they have this simple, simple, beautiful UI. They have a simple API that's really, especially if you've worked with some, like, convoluted APIs that never have the information you want, and you end up making, like, 10 requests to get the one thing. DigitalOcean's not like that. They use it themselves. They eat their own dog food. It's an awesome experience. So if you do go, use promo code SNAPOcean. I really recommend you do. Check out DigitalOcean, SNAPOcean. That will get you a $10 credit. Yeah, that's right. And you heard me right before. It starts at $5 a month. So that's two months that you can go try DigitalOcean. If you're anything like me, you'll be like, okay, hey, great. I've had cloud servers before. I'll just try one out. I'll close it after those months. No, you probably won't because it's so easy. If you're watching there, 55 seconds, you spin it up. If you want to tear it down, build it up just as fast. So I think you're going to be hooked. Go check out DigitalOcean today. You won't be disappointed. They have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt. So wherever you are, go check out DigitalOcean and use promo code SNAPOcean. That lets you, ah, you already know, that lets them know how much you appreciate them supporting the TechSnap program. And that brings us to this week's feedback. It looks like we've got a pretty good mailbag this week. I'm excited about that. Some good questions, some good feedback. Yep. Let's see. We do, we do, we do. I love that. Thank you, audience. You guys really make this happen. Let's see. First up, from Wilmer Alvarado, uh, we've got a question about using ZFS mirrors on a motherboard. I guess I should say ZFS just based on the tenure of this show and to make Alan proud. I'll, I'll try to do that. Um, anyway, using ZFS mirrors on a motherboard without RAID support. He writes, Hello, Wes and Dan. Great job on the show. I'm really looking forward to what this new generation of TechSnap has to bring. Thank you very much. Uh, we're excited for it, too. Thank you. Sorry if this question is a little too simple, but I'm currently building my first budget PC and thinking of using ZFS for my storage drives. I'm thinking of four drives, basically two drives, one mirror deep. Uh, and here he apologizes if the terminology is incorrect, which that's easy to have happen. Uh, one mirror deep, and an EXT4 or XFS on an M.2 for my root drive. So it looks like he'll be using Linux here. Uh, I bought the Asus H110M-A slash M.2 motherboard because I saw it recommended on multiple budget build videos on YouTube, and he provides a link to an article that does recommend it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they talked about the differences between different Intel chipsets, and I noticed that it said h110 chipset does not currently support raid and i confirmed that this was true on my motherboard i'm very much a novice to this area especially when it comes to system administration so i'm not sure if this would affect raid z or Z, or if zfs mirrors are something different should i buy a new motherboard thank you for the helpful show ah, it's always concerning when you uh, think you might need to buy a new motherboard that is not a small thing to change out in a lot of systems no no don't buy a new motherboard um The, the easiest way to explain this is, is to go into a little bit of the difference between RAID and uh, uh, Z-RAID. Please do. So, yes, they are very different. So when you talk about RAID, most RAID, when people think about RAID, is hardware RAID. That's where you have a card or a chip set on the motherboard and you connect a whole bunch of disks into it. And then 
the RAID device says to the operating system, here, here's a virtual device, use it. But that's not what happens with ZFS. What ZFS does is, is give me all your disks, give me the raw devices, let me play with them, and I'll give you a raw device, uh, a virtual device to the OS, and I'll keep track of everything below that. So, in effect, hardware RAID is the chips on the motherboard or on the card, and software RAID is ZFS. So, you may have heard of software RAID before, but that's basically what ZFS is, but it's a lot better. So, no, you don't need a new motherboard, and it is actually better not to use a RAID card because RAID cards sometimes want to get sticky and put their little paws onto the drives, so you don't want that. Right, you really now, want that to have ZFS have direct access to your block device or your drives. Exa- exactly. And while some RAID cards can operate in, in pass-through mode or IT mode and they just give the devices straight to the operating system, that's what you want to use if you are using a RAID card. And a, a lot of people use an LSI... 9008, I'm getting the numbers wrong, but basically if you Google for free NAS and HBAs, you'll find the HBAs that you want, but I don't think you need them. You're just using two drives on your motherboard, so just set them up like that and tell ZFS, here are the two drives that I want to use, and it'll just work. You don't need a new motherboard. Yeah, that really does make it pretty easy. Check out the um, FreeBSD handbook for some nice helpful tips for getting started. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though you're using Linux, it's still a very good resource. Okay. Anything else you want to add there? Uh, hopefully, this is a um, similar solution, so we can kind of get going and have a good time with ZFS. I think you really like it. Yeah, a little bit of upfront learning, like you often learn some new terms and you know how to learn your way around the different commands. But once you do, you'll find that you have a very resilient system, and you yep. can be confident in performance, data integrity, all those awesome things. Have fun. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's see. Next up in the mailbag, this one's from this Jameson. One? Oh, this yep. is great. Uh, he writes about rack noise. Dan, how do you keep your rack so quiet? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for writing us, Jameson. Well, Jameson, I want to point out that in, when I was at Carleton University uh, taking computer science, I had a professor named John Pugh. John was an Englishman, and he I remember one of the courses he taught us was Lisp, among many other things. I'm a Lisp and fan myself. He, he, he's one of the profs that I remember the most. He, he was good. So how do I keep it quiet? I use big fans, bloody big fans, <laughs> and big heat sinks. Simple so physics. My, my main two servers are 3U and a 4U, and those are the ones that I move from a tower case into there. Um, on, in the in the show notes, I've added a link to one of the fans, and it's a Noctua fan. It's an NHDS15S. It comes with a fan, and with the fan, this heat sink weighs one thousand one hundred and five grams. That's Here's a two picture and a half, of that. That's two and a half pounds of cooling. Wow! So there in the front, that's a slot cover. That's that's the height of a PCI card. So if you look at that, that's a good six or eight inches high, that that heat sink. That's a lot of but, metal. But it's wonderful. It's it's very I had to cut a hole in my case in order to to get that fitted in. 
But anyway, I replace all the case fans with lower speed, higher volume fans, and that that's how I keep it quiet. And I'm a big fan of Noctua fans. There's all kinds of fans around that that will do um, that are quieter and slower. So you move more air with less speed. That's how you do it. Awesome. Well, that's good advice for everyone else. So hopefully, other and if anyone's having loud fan problems, mm-hmm. take the advice, mm-hmm. write to us about how that device worked. Or if you have further follow-up questions for Dan and his amazing rack, uh, we would love to hear them. Thank you. All right. Let me just reach down over here into the mailbag, pull up something new. Looks like we've got something from Tyler. Okay, Tyler writes us about an IP address question. Hey, fun, networking, great. He writes, I am looking to switch over to using PFSense on a Socris, I'm not sure I'm familiar with that, but we'll have to look that up, uh, a router instead of my modem router wireless access point combo he currently has from Comcast. I'm really happy with how my default gateway is addressed as 10.0.0.1, as this is nice and tidy to a decimal-loving human. Huh, interesting. I want to be able to have VLANs. Does this mean I need to have subnets? I also want to have more than 254 hosts, but uh, 65,000, that's more than I need. Can I keep my tidy 10.0.0.1 address range with a subnet mask of 255.0.0.0? Does this cause me any kind of problems? So I can have 10.x.y.z, where x equals subnet VLAN and y.z sets the host number. Am I understanding this correctly? It seems like there's a couple of misunderstandings that... I think that our awesome explainer here on the show, Mr. Dan, can readily clear up. Um, the, 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 the first concern is one more of, of logistics and clashes. Um, should you ever happen to VPN into something and they're also using 10.0.0.1, then you get a problem. So what I do is I generally take 10 dot something other than 0 dot 0 slash 24 and use that as my home network. Uh, and just pick any number or, or 10 dot 0 dot something else. But just don't I, – I would not choose 10 0 0 because someone else is going to be using it and you might someday connect to them. Right. Um, now, that's very unlikely but it's easily avoided. Yes. Now, what I do at home is I use a slash 24 for my devices at home. Um, and then what I do is I put each VLAN on its own slash 24. Um, and say I have a server at uh, 10.1.0.5, then that might be the main server VLAN. And on the maintenance VLAN, so I have something for main traffic going in that VLAN. Say on the maintenance VLAN, I would put that on 10.2.0.5. So the last um, number is the same in each each network. Right. So you immediately know which you just yeah. have to change the front part, and you know exactly yeah. where how to address that host. Nice. I like that. Yeah. That's a good so system. You, it's just easier to identify the host. It, there's no reason to do it other than it just looks pretty. Um, it also makes it easier when you're comparing um, DNS zone files because I'll open up both the 0.52 and the 0.55 oh, and right. compare them yeah. and say, okay, yeah, I've got the same host. You can see that kind of visual symmetry yep. right on the page. Yeah, That's, that makes sense. And, yeah, I, I don't see a reason for you to have a, a slash 8 that's just huge. Yeah. 
Um, I would start with slash 24s, and if you need to get bigger, get bigger. But Yeah, I've used a 22 occasionally before, or similar, but... Yeah, yeah, you're 99% of the use cases. You don't you don't have more than if, 254. If you're, ju- if you're just starting out, use slash 24s. And then it would be a good exercise for you to go from a slash 24 to a slash 22. That that would be very interesting. It would be a learning experience. But if you need more than 255 hosts, you just put it on a different VLAN. Right. And you can actually join the two VLANs together. You can create a, create a new VLAN, which is a slash twenty four. You've got lots of space there to do this in. And I think that's a good point um, too. Is like that's you need to you should think about that. You know, yeah. VLAN is a, is a virtual LAN, and that's really how you mm-hmm. should be structured. Mm-hmm. If you wouldn't do something that you do between two real LANs, you probably don't want to do it between your VLAN unless you really know what you're doing. Yeah. Now, what's the other less obscure? There's one nine two one six eight, but there's also one seven two sixteen. That's yeah. what I actually use at home myself. Have a look at 172.16. Very few people yeah. use that. That's nice. Most, um, I have a feeling that most hardware devices tend to go to 192.168. So going to 176, what was it? 172.16. Yeah. Go in there, and that sort of sets you yeah. apart from the other plebs. <laughs> exactly. Be unique. I, I just like 10. Yeah. But yeah, 172 is nice. Or you can go to IPv6 and we'll get a whole other discussion. Now, that's for another time. Don't worry. Naming conventions under IPv6 are very interesting because a lot of the times you can make a semi-looking word out of an IP right. address. Yeah, you have a, a good, so good little set of characters to work with. You got letters. Yeah. Okay. Anything else you have? Uh, any advice for Tyler as he goes forward? No. If this wasn't any help, give us another question. Like and we will get back to us and yeah, let us know. Clarify more. There's a there's a lot of interesting stuff, and I know at least talking with some of my coworkers or, or friends, networking is one of those things where in a lot of places it just kind of works, right? You pop onto your network, you join the Wi-Fi, you plug in your, and it just works. And so when you're getting started, there can be a lot of concepts to kind of learn, but yep. a few simple things. You, if you really get the conceptual idea, mm-hmm. you'll find that you have a lot of freedom to start playing and connecting things. Uh, and the Socris is a router that was around before the Raspberry Pis came out, and they're just a small little form factor box. Okay. So they're they're very, they're very nice. Nice. Okay, I'll have to check that out. That's interesting. Okay, let's see. Oh, and it looks like we have one final feedback item that looks like it's squarely yep. in your camp. Yes, Dan. it is. Oh, it excellent. Is. Okay, so Thomas writes us, and he is wondering about changing volume sizes in Bacula. We currently use Bacula with a director version of 7.0.5. The current setup uses a 50 gig tape on disk volume. And I'm not quite familiar with that, so maybe you can explain that as we go along. And I came across something that said this can be slow and should be lowered to 5 gigs per volume file. Mm -hmm. This coupled with the boss telling me that the last guy used months to do a restore. And the last time I, and the last time, oh, the last time it took months to do a restore. And he wants to change that. That's pretty reasonable. Uh, Can I just change, say, Max volume bytes to 50 gigs and maximum volumes equals 10. Uh, thinking there that, you know, 50 over 10, that'll be five. Uh, start changing that here to maximum volume bytes equals five, maximum volumes equals 100. Oh, I see. So he's trying to preserve the, mm-hmm. the combination there. Yep. Or will I have to do more? Uh, do I have to wait for it to recycle the volumes or can I do something to convert it to the new smaller fi- size files, kind of migrate from one schema to the other? I extracted some ZFS help from Alan, and I hope to misuse you as well for years to come. Thanks for the show, news, entertainment, and hopefully the help. It's not a misuse at all, dear Thomas. That's what we're here for. So, um, Bacula has a concept of 
pools and in a pool are volumes and everything in a pool basically has the same characteristics such as retention date, the length of time, the length of time you keep something in it, the maximum number of files, things like that. So basically a pool identifies a, a collection of identical volumes and the volume is is a traditional tape unit, or in this case, he's backing up to disk. But Bacula doesn't differentiate between volumes that are on disk and volumes that are in tape. It just treats them as a volume. So that's why he's talking about tape on disk. Okay, got it. So you you can tell Bacula only write to a volume for one backup or two backups or for 24 hours or until it's this big. And so what he's doing is he has 10 volumes and each 50 gigs. So he's saying only use 500 gig. But what he's doing now is he wants to have small, smaller volumes. Now, what happens is when the backup gets to a certain age, Bacula says, okay, this is older than what I'm supposed to keep it for. So now for this new backup, I need a new volume because there's no more space. So I'm going to overwrite this volume. And that's known as, as volume recycling. Um, there's a whole algorithm on how it decides whether or not to overwrite a volume, but basically Bacula does everything it can not to overwrite an existing backup. It's actually very difficult. That's awesome. Yeah. To get it to overwrite by design. Yeah, right. Exactly. Because Data integrity. First, you really don't want to lose your backups. Yeah. So basically there are two things you need to do here. First, you need to change your pool definition, which is the lines that you said there. Basically, you're, you're saying the pool will now consist of uh, volumes that get up to be 5 gig each, and there'll be a maximum of 100 of them. So you do that. Then in Bacula, in the B console, you say reload, and that will tell Bacula to uh, reload the definition from, from the files, which is basically like a kill minus hop. Um, what you want to do, though, before you do that is you issue a list pools command, and it'll show you what it thinks the pools are now. Then you issue the reload command. Then you look at list pools again, and you should see the new values. But the vo- these values are only used for new volumes as it, they are created. They do not a- affect existing volumes. Oh. So what you then want to do is issue the update command. And if you hunt around the prompts it gives you, you will see an option to update existing volumes from the pool definition. And then if you say list volumes, you'll see all the parameters that are associated with those volumes and you'll see the old values. And once you say update pool, update volumes from pool, do another list uh, volumes and you'll see the new parameters. Um, The only thing you can do to wait for the old space to be reclaimed is wait for the retention periods to be exhausted. Now, depending on how big your actual backups are and how long you use a given volume for, this may take some time and that may necessitate a follow-up question. Interesting. Yeah, it can be uh, get tricky when you are trying to do live migrations or other other types of things without you know without data yeah. loss while keeping the system yes. running, backups going, all of that. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Uh, any advice or feedback of your own? No, I like that you're using Bacula, and what you said here sort of seems to indicate to me that you know what you're doing and you're asking the right questions. Excellent. That's what we love to see. Thank you very much for your email, Thomas, and uh, 
everyone else. We love feedback here. It gives us something to talk about besides, you know, weirdly depressing uh, technical news stories uh, as we've been doing this week. So please write to us or you can send us stuff on Twitter. Go to the subreddit. Uh, we love having your feedback. If yes, you, we do. If you've been listening to Dan, you probably realize you need better backups. Boy, that brings us right to our last sponsor this evening. That's iX Systems. So go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. There you'll find the ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. And this isn't just for open source. You can run whatever you want. They are awesome servers powered by incredible Intel processors. Let's say you're worried. Dan's got you scared. We realize you need to have some backups. Easy solution. Thing that I would do, just pop on over to ixsystems.com. Check out the FreeNAS Mini. This thing's awesome. It's ready to go. If you want to start learning about how ZFS works, which you should, but or if you just, you know, you just need a simple backup server, it's not your priority, FreeNAS is perfect for that. It's it's an appliance. It's good to go. You set it up. It has all kinds of awesome network shares. You can plug it into pretty much any system you have at home or in the office already. It understands it. It plays nicely. And there's a web GUI, a very nice web GUI, to configure it all. Or... Hey, maybe you're thinking, you know, at work, we have this bacula problem too. We really could just use a second backup server so we could get things going over there. Check out the TrueNAS. Or, you know, you can also order custom servers. That's the thing you'll find that you love the most about iX Systems. I know it's what I love is they have an awesome team of sales engineers. And these guys, it's really the engineer is the real part of that title. It's a sales engineer, right? They know what they're talking about, and they know probably more about the system that you need to make than you do. So instead of going like, well, okay, I think the maximum IOPS that I'm going to need are this, but what about oh, what about these factors, and is that motherboard, is that going to be right? Instead of any of that nonsense, just call IX up, work through your workflow, talk about this, they'll know the things that you're trying to run, right? Describe your workflow to them. They will walk through the process with you. You can have a nice conversation, and you'll end up with a custom server that so totally meets your needs in a way that you would never have expected. That's the full service you get with iX. Whether you're a giant company like Sony or Disney or you know a giant uh, government organization like NOAA to just a regular individual small business person like, like the JB Studios here, they will be happy to work with you. They treat every server... They treat them so well because they know to you it's important, right? This is your data. These are your servers. This is your business. It matters to you, and it matters to IX. So just don't waste any more time trying to buy from these big blue box server companies where you have to go to the website, pick from them. Who knows when it's going to come? You have to try to find a support number, wait on hold. None of that with IX. Go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That lets them know you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. And then come back. Write us some feedback and let us know how much you love IX. And that wraps up this week's feedback. That brings us to this week's giant section of Roundup. Man, we have some good stuff here. Some things that will just be a little bit of a tease probably for next mm-hmm, week's show, like this mm-hmm, first mm-hmm, item, but mm-hmm, uh, it's all mm-hmm. good. Let's dive right this is, in. This is very interesting. WikiLeaks has dumped some stuff out there, which I haven't had a chance to read through yet, but it's basically some CI hacking tools that they've really revealed. Now, um, one of the things that I find most interesting scrolling down here is CIA malware targets iPhone, Android, and smart TVs. So you got a smart TV sitting there. It may just be listening to you and reporting back to the CIA. Yes, I'm sure they want to know what I'm doing with ZFS. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And so this has been a huge story. It's kind of breaking um, everywhere. There's some interesting aspects, a lot of stuff for us to dig in. But mm-hmm. on this mm-hmm. program, we really like to have deep dives. So there's just not enough information yet. Yeah. And in a week or so, uh, please come back and we will have an Maybe. awesome analysis of this, hopefully. Maybe. Or at least in some time. Yeah, who knows? If it's this only week. came out today. Yeah, it's exactly. only out today. And there's a so. huge trove. It's like over 8,000 web pages and stuff. It's all very interesting. Um, but we'll wait I'm and see. I'm not going to read it all. Yeah, no, I'm not either. Uh, there's interesting stuff, though. Okay. There, there'll be some good analysis out over the next week, and we'll try and summarize it next week. Yes, exactly. If this is not a bigger story. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. so what else do you have us have for us this week? We've got Google paying more for bugs. Oh. finding security flaws is getting tougher. <laughs> That's so funny. The top web bounty is now rising over 50% to nearly $32,000. This this is just so impressive. So it's interesting. The number of researchers paid by country in 2016, most of them are in China. I'm sure CN is China. Yeah, CN. Uh, So it's China, the U.S., and India are the top leading ones. And then Germany, France, Great Britain, Italy, Russia, Poland, Canada. I'm hoping I'm reading the two country codes correctly. Yeah, there's a little bit of guesswork here. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, pay more, get more. This is a good idea. Yeah, it's nice to see them. I mean, uh, they've long been involved in this kind of stuff, and it's it's nice to see that, but it's awesome. It helps reward people. It can be a good avenue to as a way to show that it is important, right? There's some people in this world that you need dollar signs to kind of get mm-hmm. through that, hey, mm-hmm. these is these are serious things. Yep. This can beverage. So they're putting their money where their mouth is, and uh, that's yep. awesome. So props to Google. Yep. Okay. So in kind of the reverse, looks like Microsoft had just a few little problems this morning. So but today they had a problem. It was about an hour-long outage, and it prevented users from signing into their accounts this morning. It was basically Xbox, Skype, and Outlook users. You know, they went to the login prompt and they got told that their account didn't exist. So that would be a pain in the ass to begin with. Um, I don't know how many people it affected. I don't know for how long, but they say about an hour. But yeah, that would have been a bad start to the day for some people. Yes, definitely. Um, but it looks like you know they t- they talked about it, they disclosed it well, and um, were pretty reasonable with the communication. And I feel like yeah. it's uh, good. We don't. Mm-hmm. Seems like we don't often find like a, a Microsoft outage or other things here. Uh, but just with the amount of coverage that we talked about mm-hmm. with all the AWS stuff and and Google stuff, it seemed seemed fair to throw this in the roundup. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, this next one I'm uh, I'm excited for. So this is talking about secure computing for journalists, which is an interesting hybrid. There's some of the people that need it the most yep. but may not be technically savvy enough, you know, to find it on their own or they need some guides. So this is an awesome uh, kind of yes. walkthrough. So um, this came – this is by Matthew Green. He's a cryptographer and professor at John Hopkins, which I think is just down, just down the street from where I am. Let, I'm not exaggerating. I drove by it this morning. Huh. Um so I'm just going to su- skip down and summarize a couple of things. Basically, he says, do things on your phone, not on your laptop, not on your desktop. Why? Because laptop, uh, phones are better designed to isolate things. So if there's a vulnerability in something, it's not going to be able to get access into something else. So basically, use your phone, not your la- laptop. And then further on, he gets more specific and he says, use iOS. 
And he says, the fact of the matter is that when it comes to addressing these remaining issues, which were up above, Apple phone operating system on iPhones and iPads simply have a better track record. And since Apple is the only manufacturer of iOS devices, there's no middleman when it comes to monitoring for iOS issues and employing the security updates. Basically, Apple are good at responding to these things. Right. And they do have a track record of standing up to the, uh, to the FBI and saying, no, we're not going to give you a backdoor. And whenever you can simplify so, your you know, trust model, the number of people mm-hmm. you definitely have to, people you have to trust, that's good too. Yes. So keeping in line with what we were talking about not, uh, in one of the earlier episodes, we, our episodes, we were talking about uh, secure activist tweeting. I think this goes uh, hand in hand with that. So if you're a journalist and you're thinking about securing, uh, securely tweeting, this is a good place to start, I think. Some people are going to get their panties in a twist about this guy advocating iOS, but as a Mac user and an iOS user, I agree with his conclusions. Sorry. And if you've followed some of the show before this, or we talk about a lot on, the, on some of the other shows as well, you know, it's pretty hard in the Android marketplace. If you have like the latest Google device and you follow all the updates, then you might be in a at least more comparable state, but anything outside of that and you're way behind you have old kernels you have unpatched vulnerabilities and it's just a nightmare and didn't you paste into the private channel earlier today something about old linux kernels being yeah the scourge of (laughs) that's pretty much uh, yes exactly patch (sighs) your shit it's as simple as that patch and when you have a phone platform that has ended up not designed to be but ended up in a situation where it's like unpatchable for many things or it's years behind you're just (sighs) So there you go. An inadvertent Apple ad right in the middle of text. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm not paid by Apple. Yes, that's right. They are not one of our three fine sponsors. We, can we get them? Anyway, we'll have to under the next. Yeah, yeah, on to the next the thing. Next. All right. Chris, note to Chris and Rikai. What do we got next? Um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Do I have that right? Yes. EFF? Yes, thank you. The EFF has told the court, forcing someone to unlock and decrypt their phone violates the Constitution. I'm a big believer in privacy, especially when it comes to what's on your cell phone and on your laptop. We're not talking about phone numbers and who you called and when and for how long. There is so much private and personal information on phones and laptops today that you really need a court order for this. There is no way that the police should be able to say to you, unlock this, please. We want to look through it. They should require a court order. A judge has to be involved, someone independent, hopefully independent, who will go through this and review it correctly. Yep. And then, unfortunately, it seems like a you know a case of where a lot of times it takes the law, courts, etc., a longer time than it maybe should to catch up with societal norms and how people are living. And so we have things that are structured before mm-hmm. digital devices really, you know, even 20 years ago, it wasn't necessarily the same. I mean, yes. I would argue it is, but still... Now it's hard to argue, you know, if you if you really think about the, the heart of the matter, it's hard to argue where you can make a comparison, like, would you let them search your home or other things or, you know, incriminate yourself, all of these things where I'd be like, no, no, I would not. And so it's really just a direct analog to, to the mm-hmm. modern devices that have all of your information and even information yeah. as we talk about that you don't know it has. Yes. So it's nice to see this. Uh, I really like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yes. They really are trying to think about, as they talk about, you know, the frontier 
um, what are the societal norms and mores that we need to think about, mm-hmm. and how do we protect our society as we do advance along this uh, yeah. path of technology? Donate to the EFF, please. Yes, exactly. Ah, okay, so now we have a follow-up to Cloudflare, the cloud bleed incident that we uh, talked about on a previous yes. episode. Yes. So um, one of the things that they pointed out in cloud bleed was that we were using a tool, we were using it incorrectly, and they did not blame the tool. Very admirable. So they admitted their mistake and they didn't blame another tool. In here, in this article, they talk about some of the very subtle ways in which you uh, some of their functions should be used and what, what you shouldn't be doing. Uh, in effect, they're, they're talking about side effects. Like if you invoke this function and then go there, you're actually going to be reading what you used to read before. Or you won't be starting on a new one. So basically, read the documentation and read it carefully and be aware of what you're doing. That That's what they're saying. I think it's that's just, good advice for anyone. It's just a nice little follow-up from, from the Cloudflare incident. If you don't use the language, you won't be interested in it, but it's nice that they made that. Yeah, exactly. Useful for anyone who does use it. And um, mm-hmm. it kind of gives you a little insight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it's like a, a tool to tr- like transform specifications for finite state machines into executable mm-hmm. code. Um, and so kind of, I believe they were using it to do parse requests or other things on some of their edge devices, um, if I recall correctly from all that. So it's kind of an interesting little insight into... Um, the technology that Cloudflare is or was yep. using to to operate their giant edge network. Yep. Okay, now we have uh, one more piece of uh, kind of depressing news: arbitrary code execution in tech distributions. And here we're talking about the typesetting tech. Yeah, T E X. There we go. Now, I remember using this for my. Uh, I think I use it for my honors thesis i think i laid it out in this which was what was it uh, uh sorting heap-based algorithms whether it was pointers or arrays something like that oh it was, interesting it, it was a lot of fun someone uh, write in some feedback and ask dan more about that yeah it won't be very exciting i don't even i don't know if i have a copy of my thesis but i'm sure you can get it from carlton university um so um, basically what this is, is, is tech is a type typesetting uh, tool often used in where you're writing formulas. It's very good at writing very complex mathematical formulas because you have to lay it out on the page in a document that you're submitting for peer review. So it, it, it's great for stuff like that, but it also does a very nice document. Um, and what they found here is just it can do arbitrary co- code, but. Most people, I don't think, are going to have yes. to worry about this. I think it kind of just it, shows, um, you know, tech and, and LaTeX, the superset mm-hmm. um, wrapper that a lot of people use. Yep. It's, it's it, showing its age, and it really wasn't designed in this era of, you know. No. I, I think no. you would have to do something here where, like, you're using untrusted input or something to yeah. a processor. So unless you're doing, like, a you know, an online um, formula to PNG host or something, like, maybe yeah. those people should be aware of this, but... Anyone else? I was, probably a minor. Concern. I was using Tech thirty years ago. Oh, nice. I mean, I mean, there are new implementations of Tech and stuff like this, but this particular one was was fixed in in late November of twenty sixteen. But it's present in all kinds of things that are shipped and Linux distributions. Yeah, and definitely. So it's going to be out there for a while. Exactly. Okay, that brings us to our final. Roundup mm-hmm. item, mm-hmm. which is 
Operation Rose Hub. What and is it's good this? news. It's good news. So, um, 12 months ago, a team of 50 Google employees used GitHub to patch the Apache Commons collection deserialization vulnerability, or the MAD Gidget vulnerability, um, in thousands of source open source projects. And we recently learned why their efforts are so important. And they go in to talk about the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency, who had their software systems encrypted and shut down. But right. That that part's not the important part to me. When I scroll way down here, they say basically they they found that this deserialization deserialization or serialization basically there's, there's code there that allows someone to say, hey, give me give me all give me your data in a form I can read later, okay? And it gives it to them. So they made an analogy about a teller who will give the money to anyone that asks, as opposed to just the right people. So. After they fixed this, uh, Google were alarmed when they discovered 2,600 open source projects that still directly referenced insecure, insecure versions of collections. So at Google, they have a tool called Rosie that allows developers to make large-scale changes to code bases owned by hundreds of different teams. But no such tool existed for GitHub, so we recruited even more engineers from around Google to patch the world's code the hard way. So basically, they did all these fixes when they didn't have to, and it's basically helped a whole lot of projects on GitHub. So good to them. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And it's great to see them doing that. Um, they talk a little bit about how they use their uh, big query technology to like mm-hmm. to scrape all of the public code on GitHub, which is it's pretty so- neat. The, the bit that they come back to is that we are only able to patch open source projects on GitHub. So if San Francisco Muni Systems had used open source... Hey, maybe we'd be uh, in a better yeah. place now. Yeah, yes. But yeah, this anyway. is a pernicious uh, vulnerability. Um, so it's, it's awesome to see them, see them doing that. It's horrible. Well, with that last depressing item, that wraps up uh, this episode of TechSnap. You have anything you want to send, say to the audience? Things to point them? directives to give no just keep having fun yeah excellent all right well that's the end of this week's episode of tech snap this was episode 309 on march 7th 2017 if you'd like to watch more of this program check out jupiterbroadcasting.com you can find our archives the archives of the last generation of tech snap or like a whole bunch of other awesome shows so go do that uh if you like this show please write us some feedback come here watch it live um you can also go on the jupiterbroadcasting.com, has the calendar. You can find out when we're live. Tune in with us. It's a lot of fun. You can join the IRC channel. Then you get to bang suggest, which means suggest titles for us. We love that, too. So there's a lot of opportunities for audience participation. Even more so, you can find me right down there, at West Payne on Twitter. And Dan is at TechSnap underscore Dan. That's it for us this week. We'll see you next week on TechSnap. TechSnap.